I think the longer term implication and, and maybe the one that may be playing a bigger role in what we found in, in this study is that when people are positive, um, they end up having more of a positive impact on the people around them in the short term kind of way. But those short term effects accumulate over time mm. such that people who are generally positive ultimately work their way into central positions in informal networks. Everybody wants to be around them because they're positive, whereas the people who are negative and cynical and complain all the time um, end up becoming more marginalized and, and peripheral to the network mm. of a community. Um, and it turns out that those peripheral people end up being um, less effective at driving consensus and influencing others. Hi, everybody. This is Alex Torpy, your town manager. In this special spotlight episode, I sit down with Associate Professor of Business Administration, Adam Kleinbaum at Tartman's Tux Business School. Adam and his colleagues have recently completed a study where they used fMRI technology to measure brain activity in people as they were having conversations and building consensus. This uh, appeared in Daybreak a couple months ago. Now, I sit down with Adam in town hall and we talk about the study and its broader implications for how we relate to each other, how implicit narratives and mindsets change based on social interactions and other environmental factors, and really fascinating implications for what leadership means. For example, that the most influential individuals that helped produce cognitive alignment were open-minded people who fleshed out ideas from others, not people who aggressively pushed their own ideas or narratives. There is significant implications and alignments with the tenets of positive psychology in some of what they found in this study. And there's broad ranging implications for how this works in how we conceptualize our personal and professional relationships, and importantly, how people find ways to work together to address larger problems. You can read about the study in the links included in the show notes, and really happy to bring this super interesting conversation to you. Enjoy. All right, everybody. So Alex Torpy, your town manager here, and I am in town hall with Adam Kleinbaum, Associate Professor of Business Administration at the Tuck School at Dartmouth College. Thank you for being here. Hi, Alex. Great to be with you. Thanks. So let's jump right in. What's happening in someone's brain when they're having a conversation? <laughs> Great question. Um, so there are a lot of things that are going on uh, in people's brains as they're conversing. Um, we did a study that looks at the way people's brains uh, come into alignment with one another as their ideas begin to converge or don't. Um, and so uh, the way we looked at this is uh, we used functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI. Um, it's a technology that allows us to observe uh, the flow of oxygenated blood in people's brains. And we put people in the brain scanner, as we call it, um, as we had them watch a, a series of video clips. Mm. Um, the video clips uh, were really focused, uh, they, were, they were really drawn from different parts of a movie in order to make the narrative of the movie a little bit ambiguous. And we mm. asked people to watch the video clips as we recorded their brain. We asked them to think about what they think is the story that knits together the different pieces of video that they saw. Then we asked them to sit down with a group of other people who had just had the same experience and come to consensus around what the story was of the movie. 
Um, and what we, what we found is that as people engaged in conversation, not only did they align their narratives about the movie, they also aligned their brain activity um, to map onto the narratives that uh, they came to understand um, were the movie. And, and we saw this by sending them back to the brain scanner after they had this conversation um, and rescan their brain as they watched not only the same video clips, but also some additional clips uh, from later on in the same movie. Um, and what we found is that people's uh, neural activity was more similar after the conversation, not only for the previously viewed clips, but also for new clips from those same films compared to how it had been before when everybody had their own understanding. And so the way we interpret this is very simply um, that people's neural activity as they uh, process what they're viewing is more aligned because they have a shared narrative about what's going on in the movie as a result of their conversation. Hmm. And what's super interesting, well, there's many things that are interesting about that, but it sounds like if I'm understanding correctly, part of that is that because the there was alignment on novel material that was coming in, it wasn't like some sort of, I don't know if memory is the right word, but it wasn't, it wasn't just related to the content they had already seen, that there was some, it was translating to new things that were coming in. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so what we think that people are not only fitting the, the clips that they previously saw into the story that they discussed, but they're also sort of interpolating uh, within that story and fitting in the new clips that they didn't see the first time around in terms of their understanding of the story based on the conversation. Um, and what that means is that people are, uh, when they have a certain sort of shared understanding of the world, they're able to fit new pieces of information into that understanding in a mm. way that is consistent or, or shared with others. Is it appropriate, is the phrase mental model sort of appropriate in thinking about this or like a framework so that, so, so the sort of narrative, the alignment that, that we're seeing on the fMRIs, um, I don't know if this question makes any sense, but what is that alignment? I mean, this is, so this is a sort of like implicit conceptual, like narrative structure to the thing that they're engaging, like a, like an implicit worldview or, or something to the content that they're engaging with. Is that kind of right? Yeah, I think that's a part of it. Okay. Um, so there's a part of it that's more fundamental than that. Mm. Uh, there's a part of it where once you have an understanding about what the story is, that directs your mind to certain parts, uh, sorry, that directs your eyes to certain parts of the screen, mm. that directs your ears to focus on certain sounds rather than others. And so part of mm. the neural alignment is that people are literally focusing their attention on the same things. The other part of the neural alignment has to do with the shared understanding. And that part, I think, is more in line with what you described as a mental model. People have a shared understanding of the narrative, of the meaning that they've, um, out, they've assigned to it. And that shared understanding leads to some neural activity that they share in common with each other. So it's fascinating because, I, th I mean, I think one of the things that over the last couple decades we've started to get more and more aware of you know, in the, I mean, people that are listening are probably familiar with the, you know, the Malcolm Gladwells of the world or the Dan Ariely's, these sort of behavioral economist type things where people are looking at all these different environmental factors that are influencing how we take in new information and then make decisions after that. And what's interesting, I mean, so what it sounds like what you're saying, I mean, so if people, you know, watch these clips, they have a conversation 
and maybe there's a discussion in that conversation such that when they watch a new clip, I don't know, you know, people are looking at certain body language of characters in the clip, whereas before perhaps they weren't thinking about that. And so this is part, it's direct. So the new information that then comes in is filtered through that lens that was in somewhat created by the group conversation. That's exactly right. So it's so interesting because, I mean, that is a huge, that has such significant implications in how we perceive, I don't know, how we understand what we're perceiving. Um, what sort of things do you hope that uh, research like this informs? Mm, that's a great question. Um, I would say, um, I hope it directs our attention to the reality that the world is a very complex place and we can't all attend to all of the information all hmm. of the time. And the conversations that we have play a really powerful role in directing our attention to certain things, but perhaps not to other things. And so part of what's going on is that the narrative uh, consensus that groups reach helps them to think about what is the information that's important as they view these video clips and, and as they experience the world more generally. So I think one piece is about the, the focusing and directing of people's attention. The second piece is around the sense that we make of the things that we experience. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of this sense-making process about not just how we experience the world, but what we conclude about the world from the things that we see and hear um, is really influenced by the people that we interact with. Um, and that's the piece that um, I, I think is also really interesting about this paper is we found that not everybody was equally influential in terms of helping the group reach consensus and um, directing the attention of other people. Um, some people were more influential than others. Um, and it turns out the people who were the most influential in helping the group reach consensus um, are people who are central in the informal network of interactions within the community that all these people are a part of. So uh, we look at that by uh, you know, literally mapping out the network of, of interactions and then drawing people from that network to put them into these groups. Um, and what we find is that the people who are central play a really powerful role in helping the group reach consensus by really uh, probing the thoughts and ideas and opinions of other people mm. and helping to sort of combine them and consolidate them in meaningful ways. Oh, that's all right. So there's so many interesting things uh, from that. I want to come back to in a little bit, understanding some of the different roles of people within some of the groups. Um, before that, what so it would seem like that this is also that there is an um, a reflection here that our attention. I mean, if we're that we are building our own environments, whether explicitly or implicitly on sort of a, you know, minute by minute basis throughout the day. And one of the things that we've been talking about actually here in uh, Hanover, um, as far as how we think about um, uh, supporting personal professional growth of staff is trying to figure out more interesting ways to do, you know, what we might call an annual performance review. Um, and some of that is taking some lessons from some positive psychology 
um, I don't know, um, understandings that, you know, we have this brain that is often predisposed to certain types of thoughts that you might be able to label as negative in some ways for personal protection and all these different things that have very long sort of historical roots. And so I'm imagining basically, all right, I'm, I'm sort of beating around the bush. Basically, if you have, if, if you have, if you're going into a meeting at five o'clock and you are having lunch with people beforehand and one of those groups of people that you could have lunch with, it's going to be a really, you know, everybody's going to say, you know, I don't know, people get together and they just say really negative things about other people, you know, and, that, and the other group is more positive that those interactions at that lunch are going to inform how you interpret events that happen after that, right? Is that part, that's part of what we're sort of talking about here, right? If you, so it applies to not just a particular piece of content and reinterpreting that, but it applies to potentially anything that you might come into contact with. Yeah, I think that's right. So uh, to go with your example, I think there are two ways in which those two different kinds of interactions might matter. So one is the short term uh, impact on people's mood and demeanor and, and those sorts of things. And so if you sit down and have lunch with some people who are very upbeat and positive and, and optimistic, we know that those positive emotions can be infectious and that can right. leave you coming away from that interaction, feeling yourself, you know, upbeat and, uh, and optimistic and, and positive. Um, and that positive emotion is going to come with you into your next interaction right. and make you more positively disposed to the way you're interacting with other people. Conversely, the, the negative emotions will similarly be effective and lead you to enter a different situation um, with kind of a negative uh, a negative mood and a negative disposition. So that's the, the short-term implication. I think the longer-term implication, and, and maybe the one that may be playing a bigger role in what we found in, in this study, is that when people are positive, um, they end up having more of a positive impact on the people around them in this short-term kind of way. But those short-term effects accumulate over time mm. such that people who are generally positive ultimately work their way into central positions in informal networks. Everybody wants to be around them because they're positive. Whereas the people who are negative and cynical and complain all the time um, end up becoming more marginalized and, and peripheral to the network mm. of a community. Um, and it turns out that those peripheral people end up being um, less effective at driving consensus and influencing others. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, especially thinking about culture within companies and organizations or communities. Um, yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, it's I guess some of it feels intuitively like that makes sense. But but this is data behind how people I mean, it's not we're not making this stuff up. We're actually seeing people's brains change and how they interact. Right. Um, and we're seeing that the way people's brains, brains change is in part a function of their position in the network. And, and that's the piece that, that I find yeah. the most exciting about this research um, is that people who um, are central in the network um, not only are more influential in terms of shaping the interactions within the group and influencing the positions of others, um, they're also actually more open-minded themselves, such that their own um, 
you know, their own narrative about what's going on in the movie is more subject to change as a result of their interactions with others. And so this combination of hmm. sort of attracting others uh, to follow you, but also being open-minded to their perspectives hmm. um, and malleable to the things that other people might be thinking um, plays a really strong role in shaping group's consensus and ultimately helping uh, the group align itself behind a, a particular narrative. That is so fascinating. Um, I uh, almost want to pause this and have more time to process and come back because it's so interesting. I mean, one of the things that I think, and, and maybe I'm, maybe this isn't right, but I think that one of the, I, when thinking about leadership, um, especially, you know, I've got a bias towards the sort of governance side in a community. I think you, you there might be the idea that a strong leader is not going to possess both of the qualities that you just mentioned, right? That it's that it's hard for someone to be influential in a group, and that we would think that that person who's highly influential is probably not going to be highly open-minded. That they're coming in with a strong agenda that is not going to change, and that it's sort of a one-way street. Yeah, but it sounds like that may not be the case. Um, that is definitely not the case. And we actually um, had a similar question to you and, and we're curious to know whether people who behave um, in the way we the ways that we associate with high status, people who are mm. sort of domineering in their approach, um, people who are uh, more sort of dictatorial in articulating their perspectives, um, those people actually don't promote consensus within the group and they right. don't inspire others to follow them. And so, um, you know, we find that this approach of being both influential um, and also being open minded is manifest in some really interesting ways. It's manifest in asking people to repeat themselves or to clarify what they said so that others can understand better. Mm. It's manifest in um, sort of probing differences between different people's perspectives in order to try to find the common ground between them. Um, and these are things that I, I think, um, you know, as a society, we often lack the nuance to think, you know, these are the ways that we would like to see our, our leaders behave. Um, I mean, for me, as, as a business school professor, um, this is exactly what we teach about how leaders should behave. Mm -hmm. And so from that standpoint, um, the results here um, were not only, you know, not incredibly surprising, they were actually um, quite validating of a lot of the things that, that we've been teaching for quite some time about leadership. Hmm. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I mean, I feel like through so many different lenses have seen, you know, different leadership development programs have seen, especially on the sort of political side, you know, I think there's a, um, a very, well, it depends on where you are and, and how you're plugging into the process. But I would say in many more traditional outlets, there is a, um, uh, there is a tension between these things that I've never agreed with. That I, I agree, like I feel these things are the same thing and that, you know, a boss, for example, of an organization or a team is more of a coach, not a boss. And they are innate, they're creating a platform for other people and they're going to come in and they may have expertise, they may have insight, but, but they may even have technical expertise in certain subject matters. But really, the value that they're providing is providing the platform for everybody else to kind of be their best, like the way a teacher would or the way a coach would or a facilitator. And um, 
you know, thinking about that, you know, I've, I've worked for a couple of people who do all this stuff the wrong way. Right. And I mean, and I think all of us have at least in one or two points in, in our lives. Sure. Right. And like, you know, we have I mean, one of the things that, you know, I think about, I don't know, I'm a big uh, Star Trek Next Generation fan. Jean-Luc Picard. I don't know how familiar you are with his character, but <laughs> like bit. the best boss ever. Yeah. I mean, does these sort of things. Right. As far as, you know, taking all the blame if things go wrong, giving out all the credit if things go well and creating this. I mean, I have no idea if they were attempting to model this as well as I think they did in the show where, you know, they're making these, you know, highly, uh, you know, decisions with high significance and consequence. And he is bringing each of the, you know, office, you know, the, the top commanders in, but, you know, he's getting their feedback in, but he's ultimately making the decision. But it, it's just such a good environment. And I've worked for people who really like and you know in that you have a semi-paramilitary or you know hierarchy in the organization even though they're sort of scientists and explore you know it's a little mixed up a few different things but you know i've worked for people who you know they relish the idea of being the boss that people are afraid of mm -hmm. and i have the, there's this clip from the simpsons where uh mr burns is uh, you know, asking his like, you know, this team of like 10 identical looking lawyers for advice, you know, and they're all like, yes, sir. No, sir. You know, and it's all and he sort of realizes that they've been missing, you know, that they've been uh, yesing him to death um, and that that's such a danger in organizations. And what's so interesting is thinking about ways to show people who might be coming up through these programs and maybe potential leaders that, you know, you don't have to sort of just trust the wisdom here that we actually can show that the more effective leaders, if we're call if we're using that word, are, are not people that are, you know, ramming an agenda down people's throats, but they're maybe coming in with a direction, but that their main thing is getting other people to express themselves yeah. in the environment. So I agree with with almost everything you said. Um, the only thing I'd quibble with yeah. is um, that these things are either or. Um, right. I think uh, in in the real world, there's a time and a place for both. There are situations true. where leaders need yes. to be decisive, That's need true. to be bold, need to take action and hopefully inspire the organization to come along with them. Right. And there are other situations where leaders need to build consensus and work with others in the way that that you described Jean-Luc Picard being. Right. Um, and I think part of the challenge um, and, and why they pay you the big bucks um, <laughs> is to have the judgment to figure out right. what style which is, is appropriate in, right. in each situation and, and mm. when um, when to do both. But, but I do think that part of the way leaders are able to inspire others to follow when they do make big decisive actions is by the other style of leadership, of being participative and engaged and in inviting the views of others at other times when those, um, you know, those approaches are more appropriate. And that buys you the goodwill and the trust from other people right. that they're willing to follow you when the time comes to take decisive action. That's such a good, that's such a good way to put it. I mean, it's true, you know, and, and even as I'm thinking about the Star Trek example, you know, they've got, you know, whatever, photon torpedoes incoming, you can't put the committee together. Right. Um, and, and actually in the show, they really do a good, I mean, cause you, he is actually highly decisive and, you know, and, the, and that sort of paramilitary hierarchy comes into play in those moments where someone might object and the answer is no, you know, we're doing it this way. Yep. 
Um, and, you know, that's often I, you know, often get into co philosophical conversations with people about different, you know, what the best form of using some air quotes here, the best form of government is. And I think that question is highly context dependent, that if you're in a community or a nation, you know, that is coming, you know, that is post a civil war or a genocide or an economic collapse or something like that, it can be, there are pros and cons to different styles of governing that maybe only serve for short periods of time and that there's a longer plan here that transitions you to something that might be more participatory or inclusive. But during an emergency, um, you know, you, yeah, you can't do that. Yeah. But how do you have the trust? You know, so the things are highly connected, I guess. Yeah, I think that's yeah. exactly right. And uh, I don't want to nerd out on professor stuff, stuff too oh, much. Oh, let's please. But, um, but I mean, the, the history of the field of management has sort of evolved from trying to find the one best way to manage organizations to realizing that there is no one best way. Right. It's very much context dependent in, in the way that you just described. And that means that um, leaders need to exercise judgment and apply different styles in different situations. Hmm. But I think, uh, you know, as you said, um, you know, building trust through exercising one style in one situation enables you to take decisive action effectively in other situations. That's such a good reminder for people that are coming up and for, I mean, for anybody in any place in their life, but especially, you know, for a student who might be studying this and thinking about, well, what, what, what's the value of building trust? And we talk about that. We've talked about that on the podcast before. You know, we had the New Hampshire Secretary of State and Vermont Secretary of State, and we were talking about um, uh, elections and town meeting and civic engagement. And so much of this comes back to trust um, and that none of this functions without that in place. Um, and figuring out a way to build that is really important. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I do think that that's one of the really special things about a small town in our style of government Agreed. is that it enables people to meet face to face right. and have the kinds of conversations that ideally can help to build trust. And now was there, are there implications for this that versus in person versus online? I mean, are there, do we have a sense of, do these dynamics carry over? Are there boundaries to it? Uh, such a great question. Um, uh, so there was a lot of work comparing in-person versus electronically mediated interactions um, as these technologies were emerging in like the, the early 2000s. Okay. Um, you know, since COVID, the way we've used and related with these technologies has experienced a sea change. Right. And we all remember the days of, you know, interacting only with the screen and, and seeing people uh, virtually in that way. And I think on the one hand, that has made us much more comfortable with the technology and, and probably um, made it more possible to build trust through virtual interactions. But on the other hand, we also have come to really develop an appreciation that there's nothing like sitting down you know, right. face to face in three dimensions. Um, and so there hasn't been a whole lot of research in the last few years to look at how trust can be built um, virtually as opposed to in person. Um, my, my belief is that we're pretty good at coordinating, um, you know, task interdependencies, things that have to get done right. um, through virtual interactions. Um, but there's no substitute for meeting, you know, face to face in person for building trust. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, I'm, and I'm thinking about some of the incentives that we're kind of talking. I mean, so the, the incentives for building consensus 
which maybe we could translate to being able to accomplish whatever the thing is that you're trying that that may be you know on the on the docket to accomplish i'm trying to think about if you know if you could somehow trace that in people within social networks on twitter or facebook or so, or something like that where I wonder if those incentives are the same Mm -hmm. because the environments themselves have such different constraints and conditions where, I mean, if you're in an in-person meeting, you can't hit a button that blocks the person (laughs) so you can't see them anymore. But if you're online, some of these, um, this has been a few months since I've read about this, but I know at one point Twitter was doing experiments where they were auto blocking people on accounts. So you could set a setting on this that, you know, help avoid sensitive content and then they would automatically block people that might that you might disagree with um and that that is really whittling down who what you're what you have visibility to so at that stage maybe the incentive is almost more to rile people up who already agree with you but but that's not but the world you can't do that in the world although you know i was just reading an article a couple weeks ago i mean the people where they're moving People are moving more and more to places that have broad-based political ideological alignment to themselves, um, and that people are, you know, cities and sorting more and more what kind of lawn sign you can put out and whether that would be accepted in a neighborhood or not, wow. and that people are just sorting more and more into those sort of things, and wow. that's a little scary, I, I think, because I think part of the idea of democracy and living in this way is that you is that you we value the diversity of opinion and background and experience yeah i agree i think those those echo chambers um can be really powerful ways of sort of blocking out the diversity that i think really is um what makes this country historically you know unique and and Mm. special um but um I, i think we're benefiting less and less from that Agreed. And, and I'm interested. I mean, we were just talking with um, uh, Emma Wolf, the new vice president for government and community relations, and we were talking a little bit about um, Sian's uh, cognitive science background and the sort of brave space concepts that she has worked on throughout her academic life as well, and how that translates to uh, the college and administration and community relations, all this kind of stuff. It's so interesting, you know, how we create these spaces and, and, and incentivize um, you know, constructive and respectful disagreement and that we want people with different backgrounds and ideas and, and, and really prioritizing that as a value somehow. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with that more. I think it's so important not only to bring people together, but to you know, bring people with different backgrounds and different experiences together, but have them actually share those experiences with each other so right. that we all can benefit from them. And I think in too many places, rather than seeing brave spaces, we're seeing people looking for safe spaces right. where they can avoid having to be affected by perspectives that differ from theirs. Right. Um, and I think when we do that, we really you know, seal ourselves off from seeing any of the many benefits that diversity offers. And so I think mm-hmm. moving in the direction of trying to create brave spaces where people can, you know, articulate their opinion, can hear opinions that differ from theirs, can engage, you know, productively and constructively over their differences and still, you know, respect one another. And um, even if they don't agree, um, I think that's so, so important for the world that we are increasingly moving into. But it's it's challenging. It is both challenging and important. I mean, if we can get to a place where 
you know, our sort of social contracts are that if someone disagrees and excuse me, they do it in this sort of respectful and collaborative and constructive way that you get an extra point for disagreeing as long as it's done in that sort of a way. I agree. And that would be such a cool thing. And, 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 and from my perspective, one of the things that I you know, want to understand beyond on a community level, how we do that on an organizational level, you know, being a manager of an organization, how do you create that environment in teams? Because I certainly think that, um, you know, there's plenty of examples where, uh, you know, these sort of um, highly narrow accepted narratives create huge engineer. I mean, there's huge problems that have been created when you have these really tunnel vision teams. Absolutely. And how can we think about avoiding that? Now, one of the things we talked about just briefly before we started recording, and probably don't have a lot of time to dive down this rabbit hole, but is is how and if this differs from the way that other animals converse. And I don't know. I mean, this might be a stupid question. Can we do the kinds of brain scanning? I mean, what level? Of, I have no idea. I mean, what level of detail can we get with it's different. I mean, can, do, can we do fMRIs on other primates? Do you know? Sure. Yeah. yeah. And right. there are studies that do, um, you know, brain scanning using fMRI as well as other technologies mm. on uh, on primates. Um, I think what's uh, unique about doing it with humans is that you can have communication with the human while you're scanning their brain right. and create more interaction that stimulates uh, mm. something that we understand what it is. You could put a chimpanzee in a brain scanner and show them a video and they would react to what they see on the screen, but we wouldn't be able to talk to them right. about what their reactions are. And so from that standpoint, the things that you can learn from other primates, um, to me at least, are, are less interesting it's than limited. the things you can learn from right. humans. Now, now, what does that look like for an octopus? <laughs> <laughs> like it's got, you know, neurons and all. I don't know. I don't yeah, think you can throw I, that in a brain scanner. That's a great question. I don't, I don't know if people have been uh, trying to do any neuroimaging on octopus. Um, so I, I think we'll have to look that one up after, after yeah. we hang up the call. <laughs> yeah, that would be uh, that would be interesting. But but it is interesting. I mean, I think w one of the ideas was just the way that we, you know, we have some value that we've placed around the idea of consensus being something good. And there's animals that don't necessarily use consensus to make decision-making and some that do something that maybe even goes beyond consensus, you know, and I'm often not a biologist, but having, you know, the sort of honeybees on one side that have these completely decentralized, uh, you know, systems where they go find their food source and come back and do the dance. And then the other bees see that. And eventually you hit a tipping point and there's not, a committee and there's not a vote taken necessarily and there's not a power structure there's nobody in a leadership position versus a, a chimpanzee that has a very hierarchical you know relationship that they have just such different ways of making decisions and you know i think what's so exciting about humans uh in my mind um other than i guess that we are them so that's kind of cool but uh that we seem to be the only animals that have the ability Assuming we have free will, I'm not going to try and go down that rabbit hole today, um, that, you know, that all other animals, as far as I understand it, you know, either fall in very large population, but very rigid social structures, ants, bees, fish, etc., or small populations, but very dynamic social, like dogs, primates, whatever. But that humans seem to be the only animals, I, th I think, that do both. 
somehow that we've got huge organizational structures that are very fluid and dynamic and that it seems like we get to choose a little bit whereas every other animal is just inheriting whatever framework they have and maybe there's some meta framework that we're not aware of and we're still not making choices outside of that but it seems like we get to decide a little bit and so you know we get to decide and say okay in a small community we're going to have this form of government but in a large community that doesn't work we need a different thing and that that's just sort of exciting that we get to play with some of these variables, I guess. Yeah, uh, the, I agree. That's very interesting. And there's there's been some really interesting research by uh, the, the, the anthropologist Robin Dunbar, mm. um, who has looked at uh, the role that the size of the neocortex of the brain plays mm. in enabling different species to manage different levels of social complexity. Right. And so you may have heard of Dunbar's number. Um, that that's right. the idea that um, you know humans tend to uh, operate in working groups that are around 150 people in size. And he lists right. a number of different um, you know structures that are well known in society that operate at groups of around 150. But that comes from um, basically extending um, a measure of the size of the neocortex of the brain from uh, similar analyses in other kinds of primates mm. that work in groups that are smaller. Right. Um, and the argument he makes is that this, this region of the brain enables individuals to understand and manage the complexity in the social interactions that make up the informal network of individuals within the society. Hmm. Um, and the, the larger that brain is, the more social complexity we can manage. I mean, it's interesting to contrast that with like ants and bees because the way their brains are structured is, is completely different. Right. And that leads to um, societies where you have these very sort of well-defined roles right. that you're, you know, you're either a, a worker ant or a soldier right. ant or the queen of the nest. And, right. and that's really it. Um, and that that's just different from how, um, you know, mammal species operate. Um, but, but what I think is really interesting about some of that work is that it points to the informal role that networks play in enabling people to navigate their societies. Hmm. Um, and, and, you know, to come back to the study that we did, um, all of the groups that took part in our study were explicitly asked to come to consensus around what the movies that they watched were about. Right. But you could imagine a follow-up study where they weren't instructed oh, yeah. to come to consensus. Right. They were perhaps told to try to convince the others in their group to adopt their oh, narrative. Oh, that'd be interesting. Um, that would be interesting. Do you all have plans for doing follow-ons? <laughs> um, we're talking about some follow-ons, right. but not, not that one in okay. particular, or at least not yet. And so, uh, so tell us a little bit more about um, uh, the study itself and some of your background as well. I mean, who is involved in the study? And, and uh, you know, I know there was, um, I saw this in uh, Daybreak a couple of weeks ago. Um, what's, where's the status of it and sort of what's next? And if people want to find any more information about it, where can they go? Great questions. Thanks. Um, so the study uh, is led by Bo Sievers. Um, he was a, a doctoral student in the Department of Psychology and Brain Sciences um, here at Dartmouth. Um, he's currently doing a postdoc between Dartmouth and Harvard. Um, at Dartmouth, he's part of Talia Wheatley's lab, and she is another collaborator on the project. Um, 
Uh, Chris Welker is another student in Talia's lab who's also on the project, and Uri Hasson is a, a collaborator at Princeton who's working on it as well. Mm. Um, we've been working on this project together for a couple of years now. It's sort of slowly making its way through the academic journal process, so we hope uh, it'll be published later this year, but but uh, we'll see. Um, but the, the working paper uh, is available um, on my website, as well as um, write-ups of the paper that describe it without going into um, all of the scientific detail um, are also available. So um, people who are interested can find my website and um, link to it from there. And I'll put those links, I'll make sure I have all the links right, I'll put them in the description for this as well. Thank you. Um, so yeah, this is super interesting. Is there anything else that you wanted to share about this before we, um, before we wrap up here? We covered a lot of interesting ground. We did cover a lot of interesting ground. <laughs> it's going to be giving me stuff to think about for the rest of the day. <laughs> As every time now I'm having a conversation, I'm going to be thinking about what I'm, the, the sort of meta of the, okay, well, what am I doing in this conversation while I'm having this conversation? <laughs> That's right. Well, you've given me some things to think about too. And, and I guess, um, you know, as, as we think about your role as town manager here mm. in, in Hanover, um, you know, it's interesting to think about what we can take from this study in terms of um, how people communicate and how decisions get made mm -hmm. in um, you know, representative government like what we have here. Yeah, and I'll say for folks that are listening, um, it'll be interesting in the next, uh, let's see, maybe the next six weeks or so, we're going to start talking a little bit more about how we're going to be approaching this year's budget process, which is going to include some things that uh, fortunately seem to be aligned with some of what we're talking about here. So that's a good thing. Great. More to come on that. But um, Adam, thanks for coming by and talking about this and such interesting work. And um, yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, well, thanks for having me. It's been a really fun conversation. I've enjoyed chatting um, and I hope we can do it again. Yeah, thank you. Hey everyone, and thanks for checking out this special spotlight episode of Hanover Happenings. If you'd like to find all of the episodes of our Hanover Happenings podcast and prior updates, you can do so at HanoverHappenings.com or on wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like more information about other things happening in town, such as monthly reports, agendas, minutes, events, videos, and more, you can do so at HanoverNH.org. Thanks again for engaging with what's happening in your community.